Had enough of the been there, done that ideas, tired of too much talk and so little action. Rewind now and welcome to Transformation and Change Radio with Dr. Kathy O'Bear, where the vision of true equity, inclusion, courage, and purpose meet powerfully. Dr. Kathy delivers with dynamic, engaging conversation and the most authentically brave dialogue on air today. This hit show will challenge you to explore current issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion and deepen your capacity to choose courage to speak up to greater inclusion in everything you do. Fasten your seatbelts and accelerate your effectiveness to become a powerful change agent in your life, community, job, and society. Imagine true equity and inclusion and get the tools to really manifest your vision. No frills, no fluff, just really powerful, good stuff. Transformation and Change Radio starts now. Welcome to Center for Transformation Change Radio. I said it wrong because I'm so excited, a little out of my body to have Dr. Victoria Ferris of Ferris Consulting back. Victoria, thank you so much for coming back to the radio show. Thank you. I'm excited. You all might remember her from just a few months ago. Victoria, you and I were just talking and you started talking about the role of white women as man thing racism. You started talking about all kinds of things that structural racism needs structural responses. And so I wanted you to come on back as I'm uh, having a few last ones to really talk about what, if anything, have we individually collectively learned since mm-hmm. the murder of Mr. George Floyd and many others as the murder trial related to the murder of Armorius, they're doing jury selection right now. What have we learned? What do we need to have learned? <laughs> and what do we need to be doing? Um, and so I'm so excited. I just had to ask you when I met you, because to be honest, it seems like I've known you forever. Uh, and I mean that, that in just five short years to come to just really deeply respect and adore you as a consultant, coach, You come out of higher education where you were doing dismantling, disrupting, oppression of all kinds, Um, working the politics and all that is why you just spoke truth to power. And now for five years, you've been doing Ferris Consulting, coaching, continuing to disrupt, shine a light on what needs to change and tell me I'm wrong, meet people where they are, but quickly help them move faster than they might've thought they might have. Am I overstating? No, no, I think that's the goal. Um, That's definitely the goal. Because whenever I'm with you and I can't wait for more, whether it's community connections here or we're just talking, I experience, I feel challenged with what you say. I feel revitalized and I see what's possible as a white change agent leader accomplice in the world. And I know neither of us are where we need to be, but I want to publicly thank you that you're helping me keep going and keep moving. Um, so, Ooh, well, thank you for that. That is very humbling to receive. And um, I, I share the sentiment with you. I, I learned so much when we are in community together. So my hope is listeners, you're reflecting who do you have in your life, whatever your privileged identity is, but particularly white folk, Who do you have? And I'm not saying folk of color indigenous folks. I'm talking, what are the white people do you have? Who can you seek out so that you have folks to support you in your development and also be that plus one, plus two to see what else we we need to be doing Mm -hmm. so that we don't sit back in complacency. So as we start, some folks may not know you very much. Why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and maybe what you've been realizing and learning since the murders around Memorial Day 2020, mm-hmm. and particularly when George Floyd, Mr. George Floyd was murdered. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Kathy. Um, let's see, I mean, you just gave such a good synopsis. And when you reflected back to me that I've been running my business for five years, I was like, five years, look That's at what me. it says. Yeah, yeah, I know. But um, it also both feels like yesterday and like I've, I've always been doing this work. Um, but uh, my research uh, focused on the roles that white folks specifically can play in disrupting systems of racism um, in the workplace and beyond. That's how we met. Um, I was pursuing my doctorate, working on that research and knew that I needed um, white accountability, a person who was external to my committee and academic responsibilities, certainly external from my participant pool, which was entirely people of color who could help me expand my own 
um, perception to challenge my whiteness, you know, the places that I was missing. And so um, I continue to be tremendously grateful for the role you've served. And when you just said that as the reminder, it is so true. I think back um, as you were talking to, so for so long, I was in community with lots of people of color, um, but really reluctant to be in community with white people um, because that made me feel good. Um, and I could feel like the good white and um, not actually have to be challenged. And I remember it was actually um, maybe six or seven years ago, it wasn't long before I pursued the, the research that I think I met my first white change agent up close who kind of gently nudged and pushed and made me uncomfortable. And I, I do think it's such an important component. So I digress, but a big part of what I do is um, support coaching for white folks and also finding ways to facilitate that type of community because I think it's essential. Um, the second part you asked me about what, what I have learned um, and I we could have a whole hour just to talk about that. Um, the biggest things I've learned though, um, I almost feel embarrassed to say I've learned this because I knew it, but if I'm being really honest, I don't think I really knew it. Um, just how fickle white folks and the white collective is. Um, and some of that is like, even I was talking to a, a colleague about business yesterday and how, um, you know, for a while business was booming. Everyone wanted a consultant and a training. And then all of a sudden I was like, uh, I, my bank account is about to run out. Um, and I had to have even just like real talk with myself about it as a business owner that, you know, my business model can't be sustained on the ebbs and flows of the white um, imagination and kind of what's like popular right now. Um, but I think I also feel embarrassed because when I saw white folks flood the streets at Black Lives Matter protests, I remember saying to some other white activists, like, this feels different. I did too. Like, yeah, like we've got something here. Um, and then even before the election, but especially after the election of Joe Biden, I, it's like a silence. Um, and I worry tremendously about the ways that we linked Donald Trump to the need for resistance. When like right now in Washington, DC, uh, on the Hill, they're debating a huge bill that would bring such potential for progress. And I haven't seen anyone outside of my activist community talking about how they're debating right now, climate change, healthcare, paid paternal leave, things that would make the lives of so many everyday people in this country better. But because it's Joe Biden in office and not Donald Trump, I think we're not paying attention. Um, and, and I think we can't divorce the, the fact that we've been living through a pandemic from all of it. I, I think folks are exhausted and living in yeah. trauma for such an extended amount of time. Um, but the biggest takeaway is even the folks who really dug into listening and learning, who have read books and joined discussion groups and attended webinars, it made me realize how much more individual and how much deeper the, the learning has to be because it can't just be intellectual learning. So we it, that's important. We can't do the work without having an intellectual understanding of how racism manifests and what it does and how it exists in systems and all that stuff. But I don't think we have the capacity to regulate our own bodies to stay present through the discomfort long enough to see sustained change. And so that's why I, these days I'm like all in on coaching. How do we build self-trust? How do we stay grounded? How do we learn how to push through discomfort? Like, I just think there's a lot of individual capacity building to do. I join you that I'm seeing particularly white leaders, managers pull back. Like that's enough. And I think it's all related. What you're saying is they've triggered themselves. You're using regulated as language. It's like, I've done enough. I know enough. And now you people of color are being unprofessional. You're being insubordinate. You're pushing too much. You're not grateful. We hired you. And so those racist white supremacist beliefs of white people are right. The way we do whiteness is best. People of color, we're, they're lucky we let them in. And if listeners are finding themselves a little bumped by how clear we're being, these are the dynamics that I've noticed more since the murder of George Floyd, because I've been paying attention more. I too, naively, um, 
and I had many folks of color when I said, oh, I think this is different. They're like, what's different? <laughs> what's, what's different? A little march here, a little march there. Um, and unfortunately, folk of color said, we've been doing this for decades. You're just waking up, white person, me. Because I'd never used the term anti-Blackness before. Talk mm -hmm. about embarrassed. Um, and when I said that to some of my colleagues and friends of color, I do anti-racism work. Oh, no, we've used it. I'm like, I don't remember it ever being used in our social justice training institute. And then they paused. So I'm committed to what I want to do differently and not just performative use terms, but I've been digging into what is white supremacy culture and whiteness more and how does it show up in me and others. And that's that deeper self work, because tell me where I'm wrong when somebody really asked me to look at urgency and um, need to be comfortable and top down decision making and I could keep going. That's some of the Tema Oka and Kenneth Jones work and I know other folks, just how ways white folks have set up organizations. I'm like, I succeeded. <laughs> and if I change them, I have to admit that I perpetuated systems that privileged whites and discriminated against folk of color and that I got ahead on the backs of people of color. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of deep self-work. Mm -hmm. And I would add to that list the um, metrics, uh, objectivity, and data-driven. Um, and, you know, if there's like a thing I could beat from a drum these days, it's that lived experience is data. Like, I'm just so tired of if it's not on a survey or if we didn't collect the data in the right way, we're going to ignore. But when you've had five people of color resign in six months and all of them have not gone to exit interviews, that's data. But we don't want that data. And that's another way that I think we allow the system to perpetuate itself. Um, I, again, I could go on about that white supremacy culture, um, but I'm with you. Um, there's something else you just said though, Kathy, which is, I think the thing you really have taught me the most, um, which is empathy. You know, you said if someone's listening and feeling bumped about sort of how direct we're being here, um, welcome. And I, I mean, I've had my best learning on the times where I feel bumped too. Um, and I think there has to be some empathy for the experience that folks are having. And I can most directly relate to white women. I think for white queer people, there's a lot of overlap because um, you know, we can we can know the harm we've experienced and often not recognize the ways we've perpetuated it. Um, but I think some of those behaviors you were talking about, about resistance, enough, enough. Um, in this moment, I, I think as a society, and certainly I think our like government and quote unquote leadership has failed to support people in, in what we've been doing. We've been living in a crisis for a sustained amount of time, which our bodies are not designed to be able to do. We've asked people to do too much for too little for a very long time. And then we throw a pandemic in the mix. And I think right now people are clinging to the idea of normalcy so desperately because we're just so like drained from everything else. And, and I think I name that because it's in the moments where I'm aware that I'm clinging to something that I know isn't even good for me, but just because I need something that feels familiar, that at least when I can pause and notice like that's what's going on here, I can think, you know, this is going to sound silly, but like making my dad's chili recipe sounds familiar, feels familiar. And like, maybe there are other ways where I can buffer myself at home in familiarity and comfort and security so that I can muster back up the capacity to go back out. Um, but I think white supremacy culture divides us from that self-reflection, right? It's so focused on productivity, urgency, the things you just listed, that we're not, no one's rewarding us for self-reflection. Um, and I think if we did a little bit more and a little bit more just honest reckoning about you know, this is really hard. It's hard to be a parent right now. It's hard to know how to care for my kids right now. Um, it's hard to watch my kids some days because I can see that they're hurting right now. It's, it's hard to do that with students and organizations, right? Um, and so then we cling. And I think that's when we start to really cause harm. And I think especially after we, we made all the statements and said we were committed, now the cling is particularly violent. The violence of the inaction and the backsliding on folk of color who might have a tiny bit of, well, maybe I'm going to wait and see. 
and just the years of racialized trauma and violence has been so many of my colleagues and friends just reactivated every time there's something on the news. So yes, just the murder of George Floyd and all the trial and Ahmed Armory, Ahmed Armory, Ahmed Armory. Did I get it close? Uh, yeah, I think Arbery, yeah. Arbery. Uh -huh. um, and can we name Breonna Taylor? Breonna Taylor. Because the, the impact of a black woman literally being murdered by police while she's sleeping, I think shook particularly black women in, in my life um, in really profound ways too. And those are just three names out of thousands in the last couple of years, just breathe. And I lost my train of thought. It's okay. So. What I'm noticing, and I'll get back there, I have little bandwidth, I'm exhausted, and I'm white. <laughs> so as we think about the racist implications of folk of color, how they might be feeling, and they've been showing up in organizations however long they've been in them, I lose words, I can't remember names more than before the pandemic. Your point, which I love is, as we start to do dismantling racism in organizations, calling leaders in to do what they said they would do, also having that empathy of how are we doing by group membership? What's your life been like these last 22, 23 months? And having some healing space, what structures need to be in place, self-care, community care, accountability groups, um, I meant affinity groups, and, to not stop at how are we doing in these times, but enough nourishment so that we keep going is what you were saying with your dad's chilling. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Self-care, community care. We, our systems are not set up and people are coming back to work. Let's go. Come on. Yep. And I was just going to add that there's a great resignation. I've heard folks kind of call it that, right? So not only are we back to work and back to normal where we were already overworked and undercompensated, now folks are being asked to do two and three people's jobs because there's a quote unquote labor shortage. Um, and I think a, an increasing number of people who are saying, I don't want to live like this anymore. So I'll figure something else out. And I think higher education is being particularly hit in this way because for a very long time, uh, I think we've been sort of gaslighting this idea that if you do it for the students, you don't need like doing it to feel good and eat pizza is, is not actually a good um, alternative to a sustained income and livable wage. Um, but I think it's only going to get harder as, I mean, we see that the resignations are on the increase. I don't think we've hit the peak yet. And quality of life, income, toxic work environments. Mm -hmm. And so as we think about how white folk continue to perpetuate toxic racist work environments and other kinds of oppression in the work environments, I need to breathe and folks listen might have turned to stop. They're like, this is overwhelming. And if we can't have the resilience and you call it, call it the body regulation to stay present with all that needs to be addressed, even in this moment in Washington, which I'm praying they move in and get at least 1.75 million, which is only a quarter of what needed to have been. And I'm not even sure that 6 trillion was what was needed, but it is just, Talk about white supremacy. We just keep cutting it in half and cutting it in half and compromising. Compromise, compromise. I mean, just as an aside, call your senators, especially if you live in Arizona or West Virginia, your two senators are, have far more control right now than any other senators in the country. Call your reps. I'll step back off my electoral politics bandwagon, but. It's all connected. If we absolutely. can't have, because when you were saying earlier, all the changes in that bill, that could have been this bill will address what is disproportionately killing folks with fewer resources, economic, emotional, mental, folk of color, because the historic racism, continued racism. And so I have it all related. Um, Absolutely. Change Absolutely. in our society. All right, Bree. Just a quick aside, I heard LBJ, President Johnson, a clip of him on some podcast this week 
I didn't realize that he did anti-poverty. I mean, there's just so much I didn't learn and I was alive then, I was only like eight or nine, but there's so much that other white leaders have done some to really significantly Roosevelt and there's problems with both of them and others. And what can we be challenging ourselves as leaders and organizations today? And so we just have a few minutes before the break. Why don't we start with, um, you mentioned white women. That's something we've not done on the radio show yet is directly. The critical need for white women to do our healing and self-work and particularly the ways that we show up as white women. Now, if y'all listen, we're talking at the group level, member trifocals, individual group organization. We're not saying every white woman, we're not saying all, right? And if you identify as a white woman, particularly socialized as female growing up, just may wanna breathe for the second conversation to see yourself in us. So what are some of the concerns you have about how we white women have shown up, how we got to be in these behaviors and what's needed? And that'll take us to break and we'll come back after more. Yeah, I, I mean, I think um, I, I think about the ways that I was socialized and I, I was socialized by a feminist parents who I think were pretty progressive for their times. But I think about the ways that even at six or seven years old, right, you get to, I don't know, Christmas, whatever, grandma's house, and it's give her a hug, even if I don't want to give her a hug, sit on, sit on your grandfather's lap go do this, right? And as a little girl, particularly, I think it's different than the way that we socialize little boys. And I don't mean to suggest that that uh, children across gender aren't stripped of their agency because I think 100% they are. And I think it looks different. And so recently with my coaching clients, the, co the topic of um, self-trust has been coming up so often. And my clients consistently are like, wait, why are we talking about self-trust? I thought we were talking about equity and how I can be an inclusive leader. Um, and, and I think there's such a connection to the ways that as a small child, I was taught that what I wanted wasn't what was right. I had to look to the adult to tell me what to do, how much to eat, when to go to bed, when to go to the bathroom, where I was gonna go, who I was gonna hug, what I was going to wear, right? I was constantly being expected to perform in different ways. Um, and sometimes it was perform femininity and because my parents were feminists, sometimes it was also performing the opposite, right? Uh, toughen up and don't, you know, girls don't cry like when you play sports and whatever, right? The messages are conflicting. But I think that shows up today um, in the workplace and how it showed up for me in the workplace is um, if I don't trust myself to, make, to feel confident in making decisions, mm -hmm. how am I trusting the people I'm working with when they're being confident in making decisions? And, and I think for so many of the women of color that I've worked with, there's no room to be insecure or to let off a sense of, of not feeling confident, even when they may not be. And so there's a sense of decisiveness. There's a sense of carrying oneself that I seized with envy and jealousy about. And instead of thinking like, gosh, I wish I could be more like you, my internalized dominance and my ego shows up in a way of like, let me take her down a notch and let me puff up, right? And I, so I think that jealousy comes out in real competitive ways in the workplace. And I, I do think it's self-trust because I didn't, uh, you know, the imposter syndrome or the idea that like, I don't, um, I don't feel confident in this leadership role. I don't know how to do this or that. And so then I'm spinning and then I see somebody else be decisive and it triggers me. We're going to cut to a short break. And when we come back more with Dr. Victoria Ferris, Ferris Consulting, as we really dig much deeper in the role of white women, how we are set up and used by systems and potentially other white leaders, and really dig into what our responsibility is to learn new ways of being, unlearn, and heal so that we can show up as true change agents in the workplace. I'm Kathy O'Bear, Center for Transformation Change Radio. We'll be right back. Do you question what an authentic life really looks like? Tune in to The Alley Effect with Allison Blythe, authentically living life your way. Every first and third Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com, where Allison Blythe brings you tools, resources, and actionable steps toward your very best life. Take responsibility for your own happiness. For more about Allison, visit Allison, A-L-L-Y-S-O-N, Blythe, B-L-Y-T-H-E dot com. Can you truly say that you know and love yourself? 
Corny Cottrell is an author, speaker, and 21-year active duty Master Chief with the U.S. Navy, here to encourage you to take back your power and live your life with intention and purpose. Tune in to Unapologetically Favored every fourth Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific on Transformation Talk Radio. Walk in your purpose. Visit unapologeticallyfavored.com to learn more about Courtney. Are you feeling overwhelmed or overburdened? Like you are burnt out and that work has become unmanageable? Come join me, Dr. Kate, on the front porch every second and fourth Friday for open and honest conversations about burnout recovery during the From Burnout to Recovery show on TransformationTalkRadio.com. To learn more about me, visit LiftWellnessConsulting.com and begin your journey to burnout recovery. Are you feeling lost in this journey we call life? When you awaken the truth of your patterns, limitations, and beliefs, you can start to heal relationship with yourself, others, and your circumstances. I'm Ritika Rose, life coach, author, and speaker. My mission is to help you align with your most powerful, authentic self and transform how you experience your inner and outer world. Find the confidence and peace to live the highest version of your life. Visit RitikaRose.com. Introducing the Brilliant Black Man Show with Melissa Johnson. Tune in as Melissa shares the stories of successful black men across the country. This show is designed to change the narrative of how black men are portrayed in the world. The show will highlight their brilliance and how they are making a difference in their family, community, boardroom, and the world. For more information on the show, visit wildministriesllc.com. Are you done being afraid to jump into the life that's waiting for you? Are you ready for a real shift? I invite you to tune in every Tuesday with me, Tracy L, on the Tracy L Clark Show, where we will teach you how to live your extraordinary life. At 8 a.m. Pacific on Transformation Talk Radio, where I will provide the tools and the steps needed to help you transcend perceived limitations and move forward with an extraordinary life. For more information, visit me at TracyLClark.com. So excited to be back here in Transformation Change Radio with Dr. Victoria Ferris, Ferris Consulting, to continue talking about what's our role as white folks, and particularly we left off as white women who are socialized female, particularly our role in organizations that actually unintentionally we may be colluding, perpetuating, just trying to survive given sexism, patriarchy. And we might be being used intentionally by the system to perpetuate racism and white privilege. So welcome back, Dr. Victoria Ferris. Keep talking about what you know about what you're learning since the murder of George Floyd around the role of white women and what we need to do differently. Well, Kathy, right before the break, you dropped the word enforcer and talked about the ways that white women end up insulating white men. And... I, I, we got to go back to that because I think it is really spot on. And here's the thing. I really love the way you're inviting listeners to pause and notice if you're, this is feeling a bump. Um, and I just want to say this um, feels like a bump for me sometimes, but more than that, it triggers up like anger and resentment and rage. And I just want to name and hold space for all of that too. Um, And part of my socialization, I remember literally sitting in therapy and saying like, I don't know how to feel angry. I either like cry or like want to go like kickboxing or I just swallow it. Um, because again, it's not becoming of women to feel angry, right? I mean, Disney princesses, like again, the socialization there. So just naming that, um, maybe it's a bump, maybe it's anger, whatever's coming up though, I honor it. Um, but I, I do think that, um, this role of the enforcer is an important one because I think women collectively, femme people, trans folk are on the forefront of the labor of shifting the cultural narrative in this country. I mean, I'm in addition to my academic work, I'm an activist. And when I tell you that it is often at least 80% of folks are uh, female, trans, queer, uh, femme people, largely. The the cis men that I see in organizing and um, 
activist spaces is a small percentage and especially of white men. Um, and so if you're listening as a white man, please get in the streets, find your local group, Oh, your body is valuable and can play a crucial role in the resistance. Um, but I think this enforcer is, is kind of a twofold, right? So we are asked to uphold policies and practices. Um, you know, I remember getting promoted and then immediately getting promoted because of my passion and commitment to equity work and then being asked to fire the one Latina in the office. Um, right, we get we get put in the position then of having to support and uphold the system and be complicit in it. Um, and um, and I think that buffer is an important one because what happens is what then we come for each other, right? In the same way that I think white supremacy tries to divide communities of color, pin you know I, I've seen just in the last year Asian communities against Black communities, they're all experiencing racism. So I don't know, but when we keep each other arguing with each other. The, these white men are over here on their yachts, like having a good old time. So I think that is an, such an important um, uh, experience that you named and put voice to that um, makes me freaking angry. It makes me angry. And it makes me angry that I was socialized in these ways. And I don't think my parents were like, let's raise her to be the kind of girl that upholds a white male patriarchy society. Um, but I think we don't talk about systems often. As parents, we don't talk about systems. So we think about how we're raising individuals without recognizing how the system is, is um, socializing and conditioning and informing and sending messages to the same individuals. And so um, it, it does make me angry to think the ways that I was taught to even imagine a life, like this whole idea of, um, the American dream, right? Like we're taught to imagine a house with a picket fence and a nice car. I mean, shoot, I didn't come out until I was in my thirties because my whole life I was taught to imagine my boyfriends and my husband. Um, and it just didn't occur to me that there was another way to be in the world. Um, and I think that's part of too, why we see people clinging right now because as things start to change, we're like, wait a minute. I was all for Black Lives Matter until you told me that something I'm doing has to be different because I have this view of how it's supposed to be. So anyway, I think so many of the conditions at play make this work difficult for sustaining because we haven't been built to be um, to be able to sustain this kind of change. We've been built and socialized to uphold it. I'm having a new thought because there's a payoff to being built to be the enforcer, do what you're told. Um, there's a payoff. And when I was inside organizations, when I was being a consultant and not pushing as hard as I, I push now, I wanted to keep my income. I wanted to be liked. I wanted friends, white men and other white women who were in senior leadership let me in and got me mentoring and sponsoring. And so I know I had to really look at my fears of uh, there's not going to be enough. If I push back, if I speak up, if I get fired, truth is I've been fired six or eight times in my life to still have had fear of being fired. I guess finally I resolved it because it hasn't been happening. Um, but I think at the group level, fear of what we're going to lose, because as you mentioned on the break, with sexism and patriarchy, white women, even though we have far more than most folk, especially if we have education and class privilege. I do want to bring in some education um, mm -hmm. as well as other privileged, able-bodied. Um, and still the fear of losing this either or there's not enough. So if I really push the system and I get pushed out, who am I? And will I be able to raise my kids, take care of the family, have retirement? So the the we get bought they talk about the golden um handcuffs is it is that the yep. right metaphor yep. that especially with managers in some organizations and above the pay the benefits are such for white women to think about what else could i do with my skills where i would get this much security financial so i go along to get along yeah you know i think i think we have to be strategic. And, and I completely agree with you that we, you know, we, we weren't built for this. And I, I think in the same ways, our privilege allows us to not have to be in community, um, right? I've learned so much in the last um, two years about mutual aid, 
which is not a concept I've ever had to understand because I've always had access to my needs being met, right? Um, but I think there's so much to be learned from um, communities that are fighting for liberation and freedom and access about building power and building um, uh, community, right? Both to care for each other and to um, push for change. And I think another way that the system perpetuates its own power is by promoting individual accountability for systemic problems. I think that the most clear example of this to me is the climate crisis right now, where um, just the other day I was watching a YouTube video about the um, trash in the, in the oceans and how it's like, there's like trash, I think they call them gardens. I don't actually remember, but the takeaway for me was at the end of this video, it was all about how the Pacific Ocean is essentially a trash patch and how it's affecting ecosystems that are also affecting human eco ecosystems, not just, you know, sea life. And the end, it was like, don't use plastic bottles. And I'm like, listen, please don't recycle, compost, take care of your business. But um, the, we did not get where we were because I drank out of a Poland spring bottle, right? We got where we were because industries have had a complete lack of accountability and have destroyed our environment. You know, we see the gaslighting from um, like BP and other gas companies where there's these fuel spills and massive um, climate impact. And they say things like, we're gonna add $5 to your flight surcharge to make up for the CO2 emissions. You know, again, like we should be mindful of our flying and our impact individually, but my change of behavior is not changing the environment and the, the, the climate crisis. In the same way that me thinking, like as an individual person, if I go into this meeting and I push, 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 the whole system of higher education, of whatever system is gonna change. No, can we make change? 100%, I'm not saying don't push. What I am saying is I think we need to build community. We need to be strategic. If you go into every meeting as a, like a bull in a China shop, at some point they're gonna try to get the bull out of the China shop. But if you're trying to run with the bulls, it's a lot harder to get the bulls out, right? And so I, I think um, we need to be we need to be working on both levels. I always love your trifocal example because we need to be simultaneously working on all levels, but we need to be strategic about where we put what. I, on the individual level, I need to build my own capacity. I need to be able to be uncomfortable. I need to stop outsourcing my worth because every time um, I only feel confident because my boss tells me I did a good job, I then become dependent on that cycle and it gets difficult then for me to say, actually, I don't think this is a good idea. So to me, my individual work has been in building my own sense of wholeness, my own confidence, um, being able to regulate and not, uh, I mean, you know me enough to know I, I'm not always patient and sometimes I just wanna get mad about things, um, but to be able to stay present in a meeting and deliver that feedback in a way that's productive. Um, and on the systemic level, we need to be working in groups building um, uh, you know, alliances, thinking about where power lies. Um, you know, if we're talking in the higher ed context, tenured faculty and students have tremendous agency on a college campus. Um, but we often, number one, completely forget about students and their agency. Look at um, right now at Howard University, the students are doing incredible organizing. Um, and uh, we, we saw it at Mizzou years ago, right? Anyway. Um, but I think we need to be more strategic about having systemic responses to systemic issues, which require collaboration um, and community and also doing our own work. I just started a four session with an organization, how to use an anti-racism lens to plan, decide, make decisions in meetings, and then analyze, revise all policies, practices, norms. Eight hours is not enough, but they are building community. It's a cross race hierarchy, somewhat passionate. Someone called them the choir using that kind of Christian metaphor in frustrations, like where are the senior leaders? But the truth is sometimes that middle management and activist folk that are in somewhat influence, if they get more capacity to do structural change where they are, they might be able to then influence and you keep the ball going. Start where you are and influence. Um, 
Are there any other unproductive behaviors that you're beginning to realize we as white women do? And then I want to get to, so how do we do that individual and collective healing development? So what are some structural interventions to get white women not being the gatekeeper, caretaker, enforcer, but actually the change agent? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think, um, I think passive aggression is a big one um, because to me, it's linked, it's linked in my experience to people pleasing. And so when I've been taught to believe that my responsibility is to make other people happy, when it comes to trying to say anything about for myself or advocate for myself, it comes out in a passive aggressive way. Like, well, since you didn't want to come to my office for lunch, I guess I'll meet you over here. Instead of saying, Kathy, would you mind coming to my side of campus today for lunch? Right. Um, and I think that passive aggression and just um, a lack of knowing how to clearly communicate um, causes a lot of confusion. And I think it harms our relationships because I think sometimes we're, we're, we're intending to say the same thing, but because we're saying it like this, um, I'm mimicking like, but we're dancing around it instead of just being clear. Even the folks that we're trying to be in community with are like, I don't know what you're saying right now because you're dancing. Um, and so I think, I do think our communication style is one and the passive aggression. And I think resentment also comes in that way. Because I think um, in my own life, my, my personal strategy is when I feel a creep of resentment, I might look at the arrow to where I didn't set a boundary. Because for me, resentment is a sign that I said yes to something that I didn't want to do. Um, and so I think there's an important self-accountability practice in there. Um, but again, when we've been taught to people please, resentment comes naturally. Um, and um, I, I think that those behaviors kind of facilitate other unproductive behaviors, um, like you know, opting out, ending meetings early, half-assing our supervision or our leadership or management because we've said yes to more responsibility without extra pay and now we're mad, um, which we should be mad, um, but we also have to find our agency in that. I know I use my burnout and exhaustion as a badge in student affairs and higher ed, but I think it's similar to folks in healthcare, potentially counseling, teachers. It's like, I'm doing so many things. I'm exhausted as an excuse for not then doing effective supervision, coaching, discipline of everyone, but particularly sponsoring, mentoring folk of color. I just kept them at a distance because I don't want to call me racist, just breathe. The worker white women, to, as you said, do our healing work around sexism, patriarchy, where we've been hurt, our trauma. During the break, you reminded me to really, that's important work, because as a lesbian, I couldn't even begin to think about dismantling racism or how I perpetuated whiteness. I was in such pain around homophobia. And so as we work with white women, that balance of don't stop at dismantling wounds and sexism and find your voice and name, and now how have we participated in creating the same structure that is negatively impacting folk of color, indigenous folk. And so that, uh, the other thing that's coming to me is, um, I was taught very early, I was supposed to kiss up to men, flirt with them. And um, I think even before I came out, I was like, oh no, that's not who I am. And I, my gender presentation is different than, um, you know, I'm wearing this today, but that's only for this. And so um, gender presentation, I want to add to the conversation in addition to gender identity and in addition to sex, because uh, I do think and I wonder if the more folks through behavior or appearance look like the white cis femme women that men generally white men want being the buffer and doing their job. Notice that just came out of my mouth. I've watched women cross race, particularly white women doing and doing and doing and white men not being held accountable to do their jobs in the yes. same way. So I just wanted to pop that in. Mm -hmm. So when we're working with white women having these intersecting identities, how are we socialized space to have some pain rage around sexism? What else do you think when we bring white women together, especially who've been socialized female, what helps us do the healing work and what do we need to be doing differently? Yeah, I mean, I think healing is the is the key word there. And and I again I I think um 
I think across the board, white folks, I think we, anyone who is existing in a white supremacy culture is get our, our humanity is getting harmed and healing is essential. And I think it looks different for white people. And I think for a long time, I shied away from naming that white people needed healing because it felt like centering white people in a conversation that I generally am like beating the drum of decentering whiteness. And um, my ancestors enslaved humans for generations. It is literally in my DNA to exert dominance and violence other, over other human beings, right? Like, and me distancing myself from that might make me feel better, but it doesn't change that my body has come from, my DNA is shifted through. And I, I know there's increasing research about how intergenerational trauma manifests in particularly black bodies who are legacies of enslaved individuals. And I personally, I mean, I'm not a scientist and biologist, but I believe the same thing to be true. And so um, anyone, I, I, I posted this on my Instagram and somebody made a comment that was so poignant because I, I basically said, I've been reluctant to say this and I'm going to say it. I think white people need healing and that's the work I want to be doing. And she commented and said, any person who could spend their life only feeling, finding humanity and, and feeling good when they it's at the expense of another human being absolutely needs healing, right? And um, I think about it as like the bully on the playground. You know, the kids who are getting picked on certainly need to be cared for, but the kid who's hurting other kids also needs some, some loving, right? And so I think um, for white women and, and folks who have been socialized into white femininity, um, I think the healing comes in reclaiming our agency and our humanity, not from a reactive ego-based place, but from a really grounded place. Um, I remember so many years ago when I first met you, I was getting ready to defend, I think my dissertation proposal and you were coaching me before. I don't know if you remember this, but I said I was gonna do a power pose and you invited me to think about instead of power posing, putting my feet in the earth and connecting mm. to the, like the earth in a grounded way. And at the time it didn't make sense and I did my power pose. And now I really, I understand that the power pose still cultivated a sense of power over. And my healing has been in being able to not need to prove anything to anyone to know that I am good and inherently whole. So if I displease my boss because I say the thing that they don't want to be said, I go home and still know that I am a whole person because I don't necessarily need that external validation. And so I think the healing lies in not outsourcing our worthiness, in cultivating self-trust and um, in like reclaiming our voice. And for me, part of that also is recognizing how I've participated and colluded and why it might've been survival Yes. But I was taught white people were better, superior folks of color or deficit. I was supposed to help them. And so a lot of those racist, white supremacist attitudes. And if folks are bumping into the words, we need to normalize that language and not just say it's these folks that are out marching and unite the right and being white terrorists in Charlottesville. All of us have probably absorbed similar messages. Mm -hmm. And so how to heal, dig them out and refuse to ever act on racist, white supremacist beliefs again, find your voice to speak up. It's going to take a lot of healing. And so structures in organizations, while you have folks for folk, spaces for folk of color, indigenous folks to do empowerment, healing work without white folk, we need space for white folk. And what only because talking to you, what, two weeks ago and now today, we're going to start something in February as a pilot space for white women virtually. We'll have it open source to really come do our awareness and healing work and then see where it goes. And organizations may wanna think about white accountability groups as well as some, some work particularly for white women and white men separately across gender identities. Mm -hmm. Whew, we could keep going, we probably have to wind down. Can you let us know how people can find you and any final thoughts that you have for folks? Yeah, yeah. Um... I mean, I'm not sure about final thoughts. I, I think this was just such a wonderful conversation. I, if I have a final thought, it's I hesitate to end on the individual healing, 
without also remembering that it has to be, it has to also be going side by side to systemic change work. So I never want to focus um, the importance of healing for white folks without it being within the larger context of in order to be effective change agents, because the system is perpetuating profound violence and it has been on the spotlight over the last couple of years. The climate crisis is disproportionately hurting people of color. I mean, there's not a single um, factor that is not impacted in a person's life that is not directly impacted by race, right? So healing in order to disrupt and change and and, um, build community, right? So that's where I will wrap. Um, folks can find me. My website is victoriaferris.com. Um, I do a coaching and healing work there and um, also some, some workshops and things like that. I also have a monthly community space that I try to keep um, affordable for folks to be able to do a combination of community building, learning, listening, learning, and, um, and healing work together. So um, if folks are interested, you can find more about that there. And uh, my favorite place to hang out is on Instagram at Dr. Victoria Ferris. Thank you so much, Victoria. Learn so much. Yeah. I can't wait for what we co-create in February and then learn from folks that show up. I'm Dr. Kathy O'Bear with Center for Transformation Change. Next month, Dr. Becky Martinez from Infinity Consulting will be here talking about her depth of research and life experience around dismantling racism and trying to help complex organizations. And so that intersection of race and class and understanding race uh, classism more, something we haven't done here as directly. I am honored to welcome Dr. Martinez. Again, Victoria, thank you so much. And I can't wait to keep learning with you. Yeah, You all have a good month. Take good care, lots of deep self-care, community care, coalition building. Kathy O'Bear, we'll see you in a month. Take good care. You've been listening to Dr. Kathy O'Bear on Transformation Talk Radio. Thanks for tuning in and be sure to catch us next time as Kathy inspires listeners to become agents of change, motivate, innovate, and speak truth to power. Step into the courageous you that will change the world. Connect to life-changing conversations to extend your reach For more information on Kathy and her work, please visit drkathyobear.com. That's drkathyobear.com.